I've always been told that the most important first step in growing healthy plants is in establishing healthy soil. After talking to Gabe Brown, I'm more of a believer than ever. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, subsistence farmers using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it, and we don't make all misstatements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast of September 19, 2013. We are privileged today to have a chance to visit with Gabe Brown. Gabe is a farmer and rancher in North Dakota who has distinguished himself by learning different ways to maintain and improve the health of his soil. He is the winner of the Green Growing Award by the NRDC last year, and uh, we had the, the honor and privilege of visiting with him a day or so ago. Gabe Brown. Gabe, you've been doing this for 20 years, and I'm sure you've long since forgotten what you did when you first got started, but I'm going to ask you to remember as well as you can, what were some of the first steps you took when you were transitioning into this new way of farming? It actually began in the mid-1980s. We started to do some cross-fencing and some rotational grazing on some rented ground. At that time, we were just renting all of our ground. Then in 1991, we had the opportunity to buy the home place here from my in-laws. And so then we started to grain farm also. Well, it had been conventionally farmed since the 1950s when they purchased it. Uh, half the cropland was half summer fallow, half small grains. Uh, the small grains, primarily spring wheat, oats, and barley, so all cool season grasses. We took over the farming end of it in 1991, and then in 1993, I had a friend of mine in the northern part of the state who was a no-tailer, and he convinced me into going no-till because where we're at, we get about 15 inches of total precipitation a year. Of that, approximately nine falls as rain, and the rest is from snow, so moisture, we thought, was our limiting factor. So... He gave us a little bit of advice. He said, Gabe, if you're going to go no-till, sell all your tillage equipment so you're not tempted to go back to tillage. So we actually did that. We sold all our tillage equipment, went 100% zero-till in 93. What really propelled us forward, we, we started then in 94, we started to diversify a little bit. We added some alfalfa and some pea, acres to peas. But then in 1995, we had 1,200 acres of spring wheat in, and the day before we were going to start combining, we lost 100% of our crop to hail, and we had no crop insurance, and it was pretty devastating for a young family starting out. Well, after that hailstorm went through, we started, we immediately went in, what do you do? We need enough feed for our livestock, so we started seeding some millet, sedan grass late in the year just for grazing, so that was our first foray into cover crops, so to speak. 1996 came along, and we planted corn for the first time. Uh, we uh, lost 100% of our crop to hail again in 1996. So then things financially were really getting tough, and, and we started growing more of these fall forage crops. At that time, we were just trying to survive. We weren't 
even thinking in terms of soil health. We also that year started growing crops, uh, fall biennials, like winter triticale and hairy vetch together. We started growing some combinations. We added some cow peas and buckwheat to our sorghum sedan or millet. So we started growing these cover crops in combination, but like I said, it was strictly to provide feed for the livestock. 1997 came along and we lost 100% of our crop to drought. We'd never combined an acre. It was a severe drought in our area that year. So we were three years of no crop income, but we could start to see a little difference in the soil itself. Uh, crops following the pea crops, for example, or where we had legumes, uh, they just did better. And we were able to get by with less herbicide passes. And, and we had cut significantly back on the use of synthetic fertilizers because we just couldn't borrow the money. The banker wouldn't let us the, loan us the money because three years of no of no crops, you know, it's pretty tough to convince the banker to stay with you, let alone let alone loan you more money. Anyway, to make a long story longer, 1998 came along and we lost 80% of our crop tail. So we had four crop failures in a row. And my wife and I, although it was very difficult to go through at the time, it was the best thing that could have happened to us because we realized we needed to focus on the soil resource and find out what the soil resource needed and concentrate on that, and that would provide the nutrients we needed. So that was the starting point of us down this road of soil health. I'm interested in following up about the no-till aspect of things because a lot of people, as you know, uh, more conventional gardeners and farmers rely a, a lot on tilling. Um, and I wondered what, and I read um, on your website some of the advantages of it that you're seeing, and I'd love for you to explain a little bit of, of that, of those advantages, and then also tell us when you do have weeds or something that, you know, you want to get out of the way, what do you do about that? That's a great question, and it's an ever-learning process. Um, I'm very fortunate in that I was influenced by, by I had people around me that uh, influenced me into going down this path. Uh, one of those is Dr. Chris Nichols. She's a soil microbiologist at the ARS station in Mandan, North Dakota, and she first came here in 2003, and she saw what I was doing, and at that time, I was still using a little bit of synthetic fertilizer here or there, and she told me, Gabe, your soils will never become, come to the point where they can be sustainable as long as you keep using synthetic fertilizers. So we took and we did some split trials from 2003 to 2008 where we would fertilize part of the field not fertilize the rest, and for those four years, the non-fertilized was equal to or greater than the fertilized. And that proved to me the importance of soil biology. And the reason for the no-till is if we till at all, we're destroying the home of that soil biology. You know, it's been said there's more microorganisms in a teaspoonful of healthy soil than there are people on this world. Well, if you till, you're destroying their home. How are they going to function and cycle the nutrients we need if we destroy their home? Home, Because a soil is made up of aggregates, and it's the pore spaces between those aggregates 
that hold the water that these living biology live in. You know, most of the biology live in a thin film of water in amongst these pore spaces. Well, whenever you till, you're destroying those pore spaces, so you're destroying their home, in other words. So because of that, we've been 100% zero-till since 1993, and I cannot imagine, you know, tilling. It, it just is not in our vocabulary to do so anymore. So what do you do about those weeds, Gabe? Y- yes, about the weeds, that comes uh, from cover crop diversity. And what we've done now is we've gone to a very, very diverse, and I don't want to call it a crop rotation because anytime you have something set in stone, you know, a lot of people in the current production farming model, they have a set rotation. Well, Mother Nature is going to figure it out. She's an opportunist. And those pests, et cetera, weeds are going to figure it out. So we diversify the crops we rotate, we grow warm and cool season, broadleaves and grasses, but then we grow very, very diverse polycultures of cover crops. We have cover crops growing on our land at all time. Why does nature, you know, why do we get weeds? We get weeds because nature is trying to cover the soil. That's what it's trying to do. That You, you don't find monocultures in nature. So we grow very diverse polycultures of cover crops. We grow these either before a cash crop, along with the cash crop, or after a cash crop. Because if we keep the land covered, then there's no uh, opportune time for those weeds to come. Now, that's not saying we don't have weeds. We do. I tend to uh, think of it this way. If weeds come on our operation, I simply have not done a good enough job of keeping that land covered. Then if weeds do come, we use them to our advantage because weeds, most things people call weeds are really just forbs and they're very nutritious for livestock. You know, we raise, we have 350 cow-calf pairs. We run from three to 600 yearlings. We have a small flock of sheep. We have laying hens, broilers, turkeys. All of these livestock take advantage of that. And if we ever do have a field that gets what we may consider too many weeds, we'll just harvest it with the livestock and we'll convert it to cash that way. It's really not an issue. And that sounds like a very powerful argument for raising livestock, um, you know, having a holistic approach on your farm to having some livestock. So for those of us who might be considering doing that, um, I can understand that would be a good way to get rid of the weeds. It is absolutely fascinating some of the things we've found out in the past three years uh one thing about our operation we're kind of like an open book and and we've got an open door policy on our ranch anyone who wants to come and see it as long as they uh let us know and we're gonna have an open door and let them look at our operation in saying that we have a lot of scientists that Sometimes they kind of question what we're doing and they want to prove, see for themselves, prove that what we're doing will or, or will not work. And so we tend to get a lot of scientists coming here. I've been very fortunate in that we've worked with a lot of really good scientists. I've let them come and do tests on our land. One of those, for instance, is Dr. Rick Haney at Temple, Texas, who's developed a real good test where 
it's one of the first test, soil tests that I've seen that takes into account uh, the chemical, the physical, and the biological components of the soil. And he's able, by his process, to accurately predict the amount of nutrients that cycle based on those three factors. And one thing we've studied that we've tested these fields, cropland fields, for a number of years, and we've found that through the combination of very diverse crop rotation, cover crops, and livestock grazing, we're actually taking organic forms of phosphorus and potassium and converting them to inorganic forms. You know, so often in production agriculture, people say, well, nitrogen, you know, it's easy to get nitrogen. We just plant more legumes. But you're going to run out of phosphorus and potassium. Well, what we've been able to prove on our operation is that may be true. We may run out of it, but it's going to be thousands of years down the road because what we're doing is, you know, our northern prairie soils are inherently rich in organic phosphorus and potassium, and we're able to access those forms and convert them to inorganic forms. And we've significantly raised the available level of those nutrients on our operation by this holistic integration of livestock cover crops and crop diversity. You also have managed, as I can see from the material available on your website, you've managed uh, to uh, more than double the organic matter in your soil. Talk a little bit about how that has helped you along the way. Well, that, that's a good point. When we first uh, purchased this ranch, organic matter levels were from 1.7 to 1.9% on our cropland fields. Uh, infiltration rate. I had uh, NRCS came and did a double ring infiltration test the first year we bought this place. We could only infiltrate one half of an inch of moisture per hour. The latest tests that were just done in July here, our organic matter levels are now 5.3 to 6.1%. So we've over tripled organic matter levels. And the last double ring infiltration they did we could infiltrate over eight inches per hour. So we've had a 16-fold increase in infiltration rate. The increase in organic matter then, that is more or less the carbon that drives the system, that feeds that soil biology. Organic matter also will allow the uh, moisture to be held in the soil. So moisture is no longer a limiting factor on our operation because every drop that falls, we're going to infiltrate, and then because of the organic matter or carbon in the soil, we're able to hold that moisture until such a time it's needed. I'm convicted when I hear you describe your rainfall, Gabe. Uh, you said that y'all got about 15 inches a year on average. We here in central Alabama count on about 50 inches of rain per year on average. So, um, we really shouldn't be complaining at all about not getting enough rain, should we? No, it's not about how much. This is so often, you know, you know how farmers talk, and uh, the neighbor always gets more rain. To me, it doesn't matter how much falls. It's how much can you hold, how much can you utilize in your operation. Because, you know, today in production agriculture, everyone talks about wanting to be sustainable. And... That just bothers me because why would we want to sustain a degraded resource? You know, I've 
traveled all over the U.S., Canada, several foreign countries, and everybody talks about sustainability. I have yet to be on a farm or ranch, including my own, that does not have a degraded resource. On our operation, you know, I just mentioned our cropland is 53 to 6.1% organic matter, but that's a degraded state yet because true native range uh, 300 years ago was probably in the 7 to 8% organic matter range. So I'm still degraded. I don't want to be sustainable. I want to be regenerative because if we are regenerative, then we're going to build these resources to the point that they will be here for future generations. If we're just going to be sustain them where they're at today, they're not going to be around. We have to think beyond that. We have to think in terms of resource regeneration. I'm a convert. You've convinced me now, and I want to follow in your footsteps, Gabe. Uh, knowing as you do that uh, most of our listeners tend to be smaller operators than you are, what suggestions would you give folks like us who want to begin the path down this road? First of all, it's a benefit to be a smaller operator. That's a plus. And to be honest, we're actually shrinking the size of our operation. We've let go of quite a bit of rented ground. And yes, we still have about 5,000 acres, but we're getting smaller. And the reason being is we cannot manage 5,000 acres the way we would like to, to truly regenerate the soils because what you need to do is you need to have diversity. And I, I, when people call me asking about what we're doing, the thing I say is we're trying to farm and ranch in nature's image. We're trying to emulate nature. You look at true, diverse native prairie, there's hundreds of different species on it. There's a myriad of different insects. There's lots of wildlife on it, lots of different species. That's what we're trying to emulate on our farm here is we're growing a lot of crop diversity, very diverse cover crop mixes. You know, too often people think of cover crops as one or two species. No, you need to have 10 or 15 species in those cover crop mixes because you're trying to, to mimic, so to speak, native range. And then you need to have the livestock component. I can't emphasize that enough. It's extremely important that we have livestock out on the land. Now, whether that be cattle or sheep or chickens, I mean, preferably all of them, but wildlife is good also. But we want diversity. And you have to keep the soil covered at all times and by all means do not till. Because where in nature do you see tillage? You only see it in a destructive force such as a flood or something like that. Otherwise, nature isn't going to till. You know, not, not like we do. Not like man does. So we have to stop the tillage. I noticed on your site, too, that you mentioned you do a lot of companion planting. And that's sort of a hot topic in among home gardeners these days. But um, how have you found companion planting to work to help with your operation? We've been doing companion planting for oh, ratcheting it up since the, the late 90s. And what we've found is that the roots of these plants actually form beneficial relationships where if uh, you plant, for instance, if we have a corn crop growing, 
we may plant uh, legumes in between those corn rows. And those legumes obviously are supplying the corn with nitrogen. The corn roots are helping to supply the legumes with the phosphorus they need. And you're leaving the ground covered. So it keeps soil temperatures cooler, uh, you know, a lot less evaporation going on. It's just a beneficial relationship. But we have found when we grow companion crops with our cash crop, we will actually, now our yield of that cash crop may not always uh, out yield a monoculture, but our profitability will be much, much higher because our input costs are so much lower. See, because we don't have the synthetic fertilizer costs, we don't need the pesticides, fungicides, all these other things. So by growing these polyculture crops, you're actually able to start the regeneration process and at the same time make more money. Gabe Brown, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Gabe is the 2012 Green Growing Award winner for the NRDC, and we're honored to have had a chance to visit with you today, Gabe. It was my pleasure. Okay, so what does that mean for us? Yeah, well, I'm think I'm sitting there thinking because I this the the soil aggregate part I hadn't been paying much attention to, um, so I've been pulling my cover crop up by the roots and because to make it easier for me to plant the seed, and now I'm thinking I got to figure out a way to like leave the roots in. You were right, probably because. And we've got this, you know, and Gabe could not have been clearer that we need to include livestock in our plan. Well, get, hurry up and get chickens would be something. He said preferably all three, but we probably won't. I mean, just our own lifestyle right now, chickens might be the best thing we can at least to start out with. Um, and then the, the other thing I would talk about is in my own small gardening, I, I like working with lupin because it's easy to terminate it, but... Now I'm thinking, oh, I should be doing a mix, which is basically what Edzard Van Santen was saying, do a mix. And now I'm understanding why it mimics nature. But he's talking about a mix of a lot of, diff you know, more different types of cover crop than I ever thought about. And some of those might be difficult to terminate. So I've got to do my research to figure out well, what's the best mix for us. So that's uh, where we are. We've learned a lot today and hope that you've been able to learn some things as well. We will look forward to visiting with you next week. Take care. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Our address is P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log and check in with Lee and Amanda. That's longleafbreeze.com.